Ben Evans is director of London Design Festival, which he co-founded in 2003 and co-produces with Sir John Sorrell. The festival is an annual event involving 300 partner organizations and attracts over 900,000 individual visits. As well as managing the festival, Evans initiates, commissions, and curates projects for the event, including an annual residency in the v Museum, along with directing the Global Design Forum. In 2016, he added a new activity, London Design Benali. This biannual exhibition started at Somerset House, invites participating countries and cities to exhibit original design installations in response to a theme. Ben has also been the governor of the University of Arts London, a board member of the Roundhouse, a trustee of Art Angel. Since 2017, Evans has become the chairman of the Mayor's Cultural Leaders Board, a statutory advisory group to the London Mayor. The vision of the London Design Festival is to create and promote London as a design capital of the world. Building on London's existing design activity, their concept was to create an annual event that would promote the city's creativity, drawing in the country's greatest thinkers, practitioners, retailers, and educators to deliver an unmissable celebration of design. The launch of the first festival took place at Bloomberg on 25th of March, 2003, with a huge show of support from design, education, government, and London organizations. 17 years later, this vision remains even stronger. Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. I'm really excited to be here today with Ben Evans, CBE, in Soho Radio in London. Ben and I met in 2003 when I shared the studio with John Sorrell and Francis Sorrell. Um, and at the time they were launching London Design Festival, and I helped them with the brand quite quickly before I went to Australia about six months later. And just coming back this week, just seeing London's, London Design Festival preparing for the big event, which is opening next week, seeing the city abuzz with brands and energy and positivity, uh, despite the Brexit situation, it's really exciting to be here today and to, to catch up with you, Ben. Good morning. Nice to see you again, Vince. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. Design. I mean, design, I've always said design is everything. Uh, everything around us is oh, design. You're quoting Paul Rand there, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I hope but, our listeners know who Paul Rand is. Yes, that, well, I hope they the do. The legendary American graphic designer. And they can always Google him if they don't. Um, but it's, it's just like in 16 years, the London Design Festival has, has grown to attracting something like 580,000 people came last year. Yeah, that was um, the audience survey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we kind of touched a raw nerve when we started. I mean, you you were there at that formative stage, mm. and we were taking a kind of step into the dark, to be honest. We didn't quite know how, how it would transpire. Um, and what we did to start was to knock on a few people's doors and say, if we started a design festival, would you take part? Because uh, we were an unknown quantity as, mm. as an event at that point, and they were all established. And when I mean they, this is the Royal College of Art, the VNA, the Design Museum, you know, and so on. Uh, so we basically signed up 50 partners from day one. And they helped, um, given their their existing presence, give, give the uh, festival a kind of push at the beginning. Mm. And it grew very, very quickly mm. from around 45 events to 90, to 190, to 250. So uh, by year four, certainly, 
uh, people had stopped asking the question, will there be one next year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yourself included, probably. <laughs> but it's it's um, obviously incredible to see. I mean, in back when I was here, I noticed there's a lot of design events and organizations kind of going on during the course of the year, but they, they were all kind of, I guess, disparate, weren't they? They weren't, they weren't aligned necessarily. I mean, the London Design Festival seems to have aligned everybody. Well, I mean, I think the problem has been in London is we're spoiled. Culturally and creatively, there's a huge offer of international mm. quality, and it's got real breadth and depth. Uh, every day, you think, oh, my God, I've missed something really fantastic I should have gone to. But there's just literally not enough time in each day to do stuff. And it makes your getting your voice to be heard quite a challenge. Mm. So the model, and it's not unique to us by any means, um, is to find a time in the year when you can collectively shout as loudly as you can mm. about the, the world that you come from. And what you have in London in each autumn now is pretty much butting up against each other. Uh, London Fashion Week, London Design Festival, Freeze Art Fair, uh, L- London Film Festival, all of which are uh, sector showcases, uh, international in their focus, um, trying to tell the story about each of their respective sectors, but also, importantly, tell the story about London as this great creative hub. Because it's undoubtedly one of the creative capitals of the world. Ah, on your website it says it is. <laughs> All right, where well, it is then? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly one on its way. We so make bold claims. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the world obviously sees London as being, you know, the design capital. Um, and I certainly feel that back in Australia and Sydney, um, specifically, we have nothing like this. There's Design Week and there's various events going on, but nothing to this um, to this level. Um, I mean, it's the British are inherently creative people. And um, I guess there's that constant struggle with, you know, the craft of design versus the business of design. And I guess the London Design Festival helps the business of design get much more kind of, I guess, more exposure, more traction, etc. Yes, I mean, we're essentially a platform for people to spread their message. And I think sometimes we're a kind of lonely hearts organisation in that we're trying to put uh, audiences in, in contact with content. And really, we've all the people we work with, which we call partners, um, our job is to get this new audience over your threshold. And then it's kind of up to you what you want to say, say to that audience. But I think there's a hunger and a thirst from uh, a kind of new generation of design consumers uh, eager to find new things. You know, the thrill of London Design Festival is finding something you didn't know you liked. Yeah. Not, not the stuff you already kind of know yeah. about. And our job, in a way, is to help people navigate through the volume of stuff there to find that, that thing that really catches your imagination. Yeah. Um, but what we have as a kind of part of our design personality is kind of scale and scope. Uh, and I think it's rather different than many other global design cities. Um, there's probably 25 different design disciplines of a, of a scale and a, and a standard in London, which I think is quite unusual. Um, why is that? Well, um, we were one of the earliest cities to start kind of moving into creativity. You can almost pinpoint it back to a date some point in the 1960s when uh, uh, culture and creativity became part of the DNA of, of the mm. city. And it's just kept on steadily growing. 
I mean, we were talking earlier about there's one in six of every job in London is now in the creative economy. That's it's incredible. got the biggest creative economy any city in the world. I think it's 900,000 people working in the sector. And what's the revenue in, with that? Uh, 100 billion in 2017, wow. which is phenomenal. And is the design council still trying to convince businesses the power of design? Design council's not quite what it was because oh, really? it had the kind of rug pulled from under its feet. You know, during the uh, uh, last kind of round of cuts, uh, they had lost much of their government grant. They oh, had really? to kind of reconstitute themselves as an organisation, mm. which I think has been quite a difficult process. Right, right. But yes, essentially they are still trying to do that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how obviously, what's the impact on um, the industry for, with, with London Design Festival happening over the last 16 years? Has it helped? Well, what, what have we contributed? I mean, I think we've certainly helped to put the story of, of London's creativity on the map, um, not just for ourselves, but globally. I mean, what we saw, which I found quite interesting, was an influx of Italian businesses. The other major design promotion event in the world is, of course, the uh, Salone de Mobili in Milan each April, uh, which is primarily focused around furniture. However, you know, it's it's the biggest and uh, most dominant d d design event. And it's had a 50-plus year life. Um, but they noticed what we were doing and made the collective decision to come over and set up studios in London. Oh, wow. Because we wanted to be very different from what was happening in Milan, indeed in, in other cities. I think it's very important that you are what you are and you, you, you celebrate what you have and what you're good at. Um, and, you know, one, it's very much dominated by furniture, uh, but two, it, you know, it's about selling products. Yes, there's a lot of selling elements in the Design Festival, but it's also about ideas, mm. and that's been a very important part of our story, which is we're a platform to to say something mm. rather than necessarily sell something. Hopefully you sell something as well. Yeah, and with it being the London Design Festival, um, is the focus on selling design to the rest of the world or is it being an approach is kind of an inclusive to the rest of the world in terms of like the world of design out of london because obviously the whole brexit situation well moment, i mean you i presume you're not pro-brexit i think anyone who works in the grocery <laughs> sector is not pro-brexit i mean well we maybe we'll come on to that in a sec yeah but um you know if you look at the back of your iphone it says, designed in California, yeah. assembled, not made, assembled in China, mm -hmm. made suggests that you've got a bigger part in the process. Uh -huh. all, all that happens in the Chinese factories is they put the parts together. Yeah. And what it says is the important part of the process, design, happens in, in, uh, in California. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think happens in London. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that... Uh, value is extracted from the design process has changed. The value is where the idea is, where the connection is, where the deal is done. And where it's fabricated and made and even where it's marketed is, is another part of the story. Mm. Um, but I think we've benefited hugely from London's kind of status as one of the, the leading capitals in the world, regardless of its its design and creative, creative output. Yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of the English language, yeah. um, the uh, parallel and buoyant financial sector, you know, it, it, there's lots of ingredients in London's story which has helped make the, the design sector uh, successful. Mm. And have you seen individuals benefit massively from this as well, from the, the local designers getting a much more international, um, you know... What, what's been interesting is another story which is... Uh, international designers come into London to make their name. Okay. 
And we've benefited hugely from this global influx of talent. Mm. You know, arguably Australia's greatest designer, Mark Newson, has lived in London for many years. Mm. Um, but, you know... Oh, yeah, uh, he's in California now, isn't he? Uh, well, he's doing a lot of stuff with Johnny Ive, obviously, he's his best mate. Yeah. Uh, he's part of his new venture. No, we, no one knows quite what it is yet because it's all a bit secretive. Yeah. Uh, but, he, you know, his family is here. Mm. Um, and his, his primary residence is in London. Anyway, he is just one of many. Mm. And most of our design stars um, certainly didn't have British passports. We might be getting them now because of Brexit. Um, but, you know, Zaha Adid... Uh, Rest in peace. But you know, she came as a, became a global architecture star mm. because she was educated in London and chose to live and stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is and Ron Arrod, and you know, it's a whole generation of people who've been a- attracted by the reputation of London as a place, mm. and that magnetic attraction is critical to the ongoing success of, of design in London. Mm. Do you think that people doing good things get found? out no matter where they are in the world? Uh, not everywhere. I think in some places that, that's much harder. Mm. I would like to think that we offer an opportunity for people doing good things whose stories need to be told. Mm-hmm. Uh, John and I have always considered ourselves to be storytellers. Yeah. And I think that's quite a good a kind of analogy or a way to describe how we were. And uh, some years after you left, I think we were in year six or seven when we started doing this, we started a commissioning programme. Um, we were in a better place in terms of the evolution of the festival and it enabled us to connect some money with an idea and a young, young, not always young, but a designer who had something to say, mm-hmm. which we would put in a very, very public place in the city. Mm. And we've done near 100 of these commissions Fantastic. now. Some of them are very big and ambitious. Uh, there will be another dozen or so this year, wow. uh, mainly at the V&A, but, but also dotted around London. You know, so, for example, last year we did a project in Trafalgar Square, a very recognisable place in London, not just for Londoners, but for yeah, yeah. pretty much anyone in the world. And we work with Ez Devlin, uh, whose background is in uh, stage and theatre, uh, but did this amazing installation supported by Google, uh, which was placing a fifth identical lion at the base of Nelson's Column. But this one was in fluoro red, and it used machine learning to turn a word, and you donated a word to the lion, into a line of poetry which was projected up Nelson's column. Wow. Now that's a design story. Yeah. And uh, it's a very visible design story. Fantastic. In fact, I got in a taxi not that long ago. A guy's chatting away to me, saying, Where, what do you do? I run a design festival. He said, you didn't do that red lion, did you, mate? Oh. <laughs> I said, oh, yes, that was us. And that was kind of, you know, eight, nine months later. So... You think, hey, we're having an impact. And here. he was positive about it. Yeah, and oh yeah, yeah, he thought that was a good thing. <laughs> However, Fantastic. many years ago, uh, we did a piece with Amanda Levy, what I happened to be married to, uh, at the front entrance of the V&A, where we constructed this kind of arch of, curved arch of wood. And I asked to be taken to the V&A in a cab driver. He said, you've seen what they put outside the front of the museum? <laughs> However, Who paid for that? It's about having an impact, and it's about telling the story of design to the widest possible audience. Mm. You know, I talked about audiences earlier. We've seen an explosion in people's interest, enthusiasm, and actually knowledge and sophistication about design. The fact that you've got this amazing thing called a smartphone in your pocket, which is beautifully designed, has set a standard for pretty much everything. You've got a proliferation of design stories in the media. You've got design makeover programs on TV. You know, everyone's interested in it. And you all experience design all day, every day. 
hundreds if not thousands of times and all we do is try and get you to pause for a moment and think, hey, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. And, and it works for me if you do that and then remember it the next day and hopefully tell someone else about it. Yeah. And that means we've told a good design story. That's, that's brilliant. It's interesting because I was, I was I met up with um, a good friend, Jonathan Ellery, um, who has a company called Browns. Mm-hmm. And um, last night, and we were in a shortage house, which was cool. Uh, as always, and we were chatting about how we how we started in London, you know, a long time ago, back in '94, '95. And um, I remember I was like trying to I just left Pentagram. I was trying to be a business, uh, look like a business, so I didn't have it, couldn't have anybody around to my flat <laughs> for meetings and stuff like that. So I joined the Institute of Directors down in Palm Isle, and and I kind of felt such a plonker walking. I had to wear a suit for a start because you couldn't walk in there with a t-shirt, which I love, t-shirt and jeans as you can see today. Um, so I had, to, I had to dress up to go in there and meet my clients. I met my clients there because I thought I thought I'd look more impressive, more like a business if I did that. And um, it's interesting, fast-tracking today, because he, he was saying about how, uh, you know, how, in a way how better it was then and how people were truly were a business, et cetera. And now you look around Shortage House or, or a WeWork situation, and there's thousands of people with smartphones and laptops who are businesses. Young guys, girls who are just kind of beering away at, at, at getting their brand and their their ideas out there. I mean, it has cha- changed enormously. The people have been released from bricks and mortar, having having to expend a fortune on a business or invest heavily in a business. The technology today has allowed us to be totally free, work anywhere in the world. Um, how do you, how does that how do you think that's affected the uh, the design industry at large? Well, one, it's exploded in its volume. You know, we talked earlier about the, the numbers. It's astonishing how many people are making a living out of design in London. It's just absolutely booming as 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 a, as a sector. And is there enough work for everybody? Apparently, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Um, and obviously, some people do better than better yeah, numbers, yeah, yeah. but you know, they continue into to to um, uh, attract more and more people and uh, start up more and more businesses. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also about kind of geography as well. And, you know, you talked about the, the, the kind of change in the workplace and the freedom that technology offers you. Mm. Um, and you do see literally every coffee bar is full of people using yeah, it as an office, effectively. Yeah, exactly. Which I find slightly depressing, to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, because it's like they've got nowhere else to go. Um, and I'm that's, that's me perhaps being a bit old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because people are perfectly happy kind of being, being kind of mobile in terms of how they choose to, to, to work. Mm. Um, but um, our bigger problem is London's kind of bursting at the seams. Yeah. You know, the population's pushing 9 million and uh, the, the cost of, of, of uh, uh, workspace has just gone through the roof. Yeah. And we're pushing our design community out of the city. Yeah. Um, and our clients are pushing the prices down. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a changing and fluid dynamic. Mm. I also do some work with the mayor's office, actually. And one of the things that we've been trying to be very aware of is problem um, um, and trying to help designate parts of the city as creative hubs mm. and doing deals with local authorities and property developers to give some at least medium-term security yeah. about, about workspace in those spaces, in those areas, yeah. and also giving them a bit of a kind of push and momentum. They're called... Uh, creative enterprise zones and the first 10 have started and they're at a very early stage in their kind of evolution but it is an attempt to try and reverse 
that kind of creative brain drain from the city. What's interesting, though, is, um, you know, London has served a much bigger community than the geography of London itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's probably 20 million people who depend on London in the broader southeast uh, of, of England. Mm -hmm. And what you've now got is a lot of these old and rather declining seaside towns in Kent and Sussex mm -hmm. now being filling up with creative people. Yeah, yeah. You know, Hastings used to be a place where you you you, you dumped homeless people or people with drug problems and so on, and it had a kind of rather abrasive kind ex of ex-designers probably ex-designers <laughs> possibly abrasive <laughs> reputation. Yeah. Now it's absolutely buzzing. Yeah, I've heard about that. I mean, Jasper Con not Jasper Conrad, Jasper Morrison. You know, one one of our our, our great designers of of the last generation has moved down to the south coast. Just as a a little a little illustration. Whereabouts? He is not in Hastings. He's in oh god, even an even quieter and smaller place just along the coast. I've forgotten its name for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I think the point I'm trying to make is is there's a fluidity, growth continues, the conditions change. Uh, people adapt to those changing conditions. There is some intervention from the city to try and to try and help out, mm. um, but at the moment there's no sign of a slow in the growth. You know, it's growing at three times the speed of the economy overall. This is, is there is there uh, until Brexit? Yeah, exactly. Uh, are people not are people just going on as business as usual despite that or what? Uh, to an extent, because we've all been in this kind of weird no man's land where no one's quite clear what's going to happen. Yeah, you've been through recessions like I have and things like that, haven't you? Yeah, we've had we had them before. Yeah, um, and this time it's different, and it's different because we're in a talent based sector, or talent based industry, mm -hmm. and as I said earlier, this talent uh, needs to come from anywhere where the, where the talent starts. Yeah. And um, if we cut off access to that talent, particularly European talent, we're in trouble. And, oh, yeah. you know, we're actually going to the talent pipeline that feeds the buoyancy of the sector mm. um, is going to go elsewhere. And you've got other cities, particularly in Europe, making a lot of effort and incentivizing people to go there. Mm. So, for example, Lisbon has become... Uh, quite a cool place to go and live and work. The, the government offers all sorts of incentives to go there. They want to be a kind of tech centre, yeah. um, among other things. Uh, Berlin wants to be an artistic centre. They literally was offering artist-free studio spaces. Mm. And um, other places want the crown that London still has as you know, the, the, the global creative city, yep. of which design is a kind of key, key it part. It absolutely is. And it's, yeah, it's an existentialist threat. You know, yeah. We're seriously in trouble, and our government doesn't seem to understand oh. the impact that's going to have on a sector that is now making $100 billion a year for the UK economy. Unbelievable. I've, I've got a similar situation in, in Australia. Um, in Sydney, there's about 5 million people uh, in terms of population. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of good design schools there. There's some good talent coming through, as, as always. Um, you know, it's harder to find. Um, but they just clamp down on visas. And we cannot employ anybody from overseas, any designers from overseas anymore. We have to work with homegrown talent, um, which is quite a hard thing. Uh, quite a restriction for a business, a business mm. that needs to find the best people possible mm. to to make that point of difference with your with your own business. So I find that phenomenally uh, frustrating. I'm not frustrating. I'm not saying that I don't believe there's talent in the in the school in the in the system, um, but equally, 
it kind of puts then an emphasis on the education because you've got to make sure that people in design schools are learning the right skills to do what you need them to do in the businesses today. Well, Not businesses five or ten years ago, but businesses today. You're opening up into another huge issue, which is the future of creative education. Mm. Uh, you know, we've had another big change in the UK, um, which is uh, how changing how we fund our universities. And it's gone from government grant to the individuals paying themselves. So you want to be a, a, a design student these days, you'll be paying around £9,000 a year to, to be a student. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, students um, are squeezed in the space that they have at the at the college because the universities are incentivized to get as many students as possible in there because they're all paying and offer as few staff as possible because they're a cost. Mm. So the dynamic is more students, less staff, same same space. And uh, in a studio-based courses, which are about contact time ultimately, that's been squeezed to an absolute minimum. So my daughter, for example, did graphic design at Central St Martins She's a very enthusiastic young designer. She didn't have a great experience. Her contact time was Thursday morning. And there were, in her year, not, not the whole course, in her year, there were 160 uh, graphic, designs, uh, graphic designers at St Martin's. And on that Thursday morning, there turned out to be three members of staff. In, in one room? Uh, in the studio, yeah. But then, Vince, they couldn't get access to the studio the rest of the time because it was all booked out for oh, everyone else. Oh, my God. So you effectively left on your own and so, you had to build up your own strategies to try and get as much out of the institution as you could. And it, Sure, sure the organisation sees that, uh, that as a design problem, a design opportunity. What, which one? The university to itself? Fix, yeah, to fix that situation. Uh, well, they're so... Um, yes, yes, they acknowledge it's, it's a problem, but they're so working on trying to keep themselves solvent uh, and trying to keep themselves buoyant that um, it's not a priority. And there's, um, it means, though, that uh, the art schools are pretty much bottom of the National Student Survey in terms wow. of student satisfaction and student experience. That's crazy. Um, what's the percentage of foreign students then coming to British design Well, that schools? has grown considerably. Um, because they may not stay around. They might it, go back know, to the where they where It's they roughly 50-50. Wow. I mean, at the Royal College of Art, which is, you know, it's a postgraduate institution, it, it's gone past 50-50, so we've got more international students than we have domestic students. Mm. Uh, there's, there's not many people who are able to now to afford to do a master's degree on top of a, a, a BA. Mm. Um, so the whole uh, structure and experience and motivation of people to go through that system has changed. And in my view, is that an important kind of crossroad. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, we're also about to turn EU students, European students, uh, into international students. At the moment, EU students would pay the same as a UK student. Right. After Brexit, they'll pay the same as an international student, which is roughly 250% of the cost. Wow. So unless you're very motivated or very wealthy, you ain't coming. Wow. And that story earlier I told you about decades of the the brightest young designers coming to London to go through our education system and then staying and making a contribution in our city is potentially about to stop. Oh, that's terrible. And it's a disaster. That's a disaster. Oh, my God. And no one makes the joined-up stuff between um, school, uh, higher education and the workplace. No. Um... And, you know, meanwhile in our schools, uh, creative education has been squeezed. You know, we have a, a core curriculum 
and uh, teachers, head teachers are not motivated in the same way as they were to have it as part of the core curriculum. So less and less schools are offering it, less and less students are, take, are studying it. Mm. Um, the talent pipeline is being squeezed mm. in one of the most successful sectors the UK has. Incredible. I mean, that is uh, that obviously something you're going to be working on, lobbying or doing what well, you can to I mean, change things. As I said earlier, I, I work with the mayors. I chair a board at the mayor's office, which is called the Creative Leaders Board. And we're tasked with exploring these issues for the, for the city mm. as a whole mm. and trying to, to make these arguments and to lobby government on them. But at the moment, with Brexit, nothing else is happening. They're so obsessed with, understandably, resolving yeah. this problem that all other, all other issues are just kind of parked while, while this goes on, three years into the, the Brexit debate. Big day yesterday in Parliament, mm. with Parliament basically taking control because the government's not able to deliver no. a deal. No, it's horrific. Crazy news. It's interesting we talk about education too because I'm just going to go back a bit. And, um, you know, I, I went to uh, Northbrook College down in Worthing, in West Sussex, uh, when I came back from Canada. And, um, I mean, it was great because I discovered design. I didn't know it existed before that. And I, and I was being born an optimist. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about each day and, and the opportunities you that lie in front of you. One thing I realized quite quickly uh, when I set up my own business was that my design education taught me kind of pretty top level about design itself and creativity and, and briefs, etc. But what it didn't teach me at, at all was business. And, and commerce and and how it all works. And it's seriously taken me 25 plus years to to understand business and actually finally get it. And I've grown, I've grown multiple businesses now within the collective and I'm excited and motivated about the business of design. And it's often comes up in conversation with fellow designers that I, that I have huge respect for, who are amazing designers, amazing at the craft of design, um, some of the best in the world, who struggle with business who don't seem to get business it's not their fault it may not be their interest um and it's you know person by person's kind of dependent on what they want to do but often they're frustrated with clients frustrated with lack of income frustrated with the situation i'm not saying i know all the answers but i know through trial and error and failing a lot you know that i've i've learned how to and surround myself with with good advisors and and you know, John Sorrell was one of them when I was here, and I've have a, a finance ones and health and et cetera in different places that support me. Um, why is that the case? Why is is it because we're kind of all right brain thinkers that that you know moved away from kind of the business logic, et cetera? Um, are we deliberately kind of trying to be misunderstood and self sabotage our lives? You know, what's what's going on there? Because I th I believe that designers with money could be very dangerous. You know, they they could be really powerful. Well, there are some good examples of that. Yeah. Um, however, let's just go back. I mean, I I think I believe that um, in your short period at design school, you should really focus on design mm -hmm. and having a distraction trying to pick up some basic business skills at the time is not really why you're there. To no, be honest. it's not. It's the last thing you and, really want. Yeah. And I, I would favour a pretty a three years of intense creative creative skill building. Mm -hmm. And if you come out of your your uh, higher education a a better potential d designer, then that's a good place to start. Um, you know, if you flip the coin, 
um, people who are good at business are often not good at creativity. Yeah. And actually, perhaps the best model is working with someone who can do business. And but often they're disconnected, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're but I, I, I think another feature of the last generation or so is designers working increasingly uh, left and right rather than in a tunnel vision going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, you trained as a graphic designer, but I'm sure you feel that you could do a lot of different Oh, yeah. uh, design approaches and you've got a broad range of design skills yeah, that you generalist, can, yeah. that you comply mm. and that is I think is a feature of how designers work today mm. uh, so the the approach of designers I think has, has changed considerably and the demands of designers from clients has, has also changed but um, you know I'm running a small business um, I, I went into it. Uh, luckily, I had a partner with, with John who had, had much more experience than me. Uh, but I had to learn on the job, and I mm. think that's probably kind of how you do it. Yeah. I think the other thing is, which is a, 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 a trend here as a difference, it may be the same in Australia, but it's certainly not in the, in the States where people don't set up their own small businesses immediately on graduation. Mm -hmm. And... In the US, a lot of people then disappear into bigger kind of corporations. Mm. Um, and I remember going to a dinner with Bruce Mao and all sorts of other kind of big design yeah. figures there who were all complaining about this, actually, saying, where is the next generation of American design talent? Well, they've, they've kind of gone because mm. they've disappeared in, into, a, into a corporation and they don't have the culture of starting up small incubator businesses. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we were talking earlier about people are designing everywhere, they're mobile, they've got their laptops and yeah. so on. And uh, I, I don't think it's an easy question to answer, but I think, again, it's a kind of evolution and uh, you pick up and learn these skills as you, as you go along. But what we've also got now is a lot more bigger de uh, design businesses than, than they used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it uh, used to be everyone was a micro business, which mm -hmm. is you know less than five people. Yeah, um, and you've got you've got many many more established studios employing more people, which demands a certain set of skills. Mm. You, know, you have to do HR, for example. Yeah, which everyone hates. Yeah. But, you know, it, you you are running a culture, yeah. and that culture is reflecting your kind of your your kind of design philosophy, and you've got to look after all those people and kind of take them all with you. Mm. Um. I, I see it like art, art and commerce, design and design, uh, business and design as equal levels. I don't see it as designs up here and businesses, finances down here, etc. I mean, that's why I, I try to position my business and in, in working with clients around that is that we're a strategic creative partner that's a business, not just creative people bumbling around trying to make it, things look nice. You know what I mean? Because often well, the misconception is... Vince, then you're not just working on a project-by-project project basis. You're able to establish longer relationships with, yeah. with some of your clients. Yeah, we have Which is, makes it much more fruitful for you and, and for them. Yeah, but, yeah, I but mean, I spend my time trying to find people to contribute money to the ideas that... You know, I meet a designer who comes to me and says, I've got this great idea. I think, wow, that is a great idea. Mm. How are we going to make it work? Mm. And my job is to kind of glue all the pieces together, mm -hmm. including some financial support, yeah, yeah. to actually realise these projects. And that is, you know, the hunger of that process is quite a motivational thing for me. And I think for many people out there, you know, look, looking for new clients and, and, and opportunities. Mm. And I think you learn on a lot on that, on that journey. It, it's, yeah. it's about relationships and people skills. Yeah, I, One I thing agree. you're not taught in schools is those kind of 
core skills, which is working with others. I remember mm. I used to teach at the Royal College of Art in, in, in architecture department. I wasn't an architect, but I had a view on architecture. So they brought me in as a kind of devil's advocate, which was a role I quite enjoyed doing. And we did a, a crit. And, was uh, your wife a student of yours? No, my wife is <laughs> definitely not a student of mine. <laughs> okay. No, I was going, uh, just joking. Um, you, met, uh, you just said you met the Royal College of Art. That was my first wife. Oh, okay. Wife right, number good. two, which I'm on um, in, in my mid-50s. Um, went okay. to the AA, the Architectural Association, okay, right, right. so I didn't meet her for education. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, sorry to you know, you. they pinned up their, their work and, you know, some of them were all about presentation over content and they didn't do very well. And one guy pinned up his work and he looked like he'd done it on the bus in the way in. It was just on the scrap of paper, but it was a brilliant idea. Mm. And we we said to everyone else, okay, well, this is the first stage of this project. You, you're all now going to develop his idea. We, and, you know, um, they objected strongly to that. That uh, wasn't why they were at college. Co-creation. They, they were, but it was a very, very important exercise. And interestingly, a number of them completed the project better than the guy who'd come up with the mm. sketch of, 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 of an idea. So skills like that, you're not really taught. And, you no. know... As you know, been run, running your own creative business for many, many years, it, 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 it's a collaborative process, mm. and how you get people to build those core skills, and and how you get people to be able to communicate their idea and what they're trying to say. Because yep. the other thing, experience, you know, teaching in institutions, is people's fear of presentation. And they literally were not able to tell you what their idea was, even though you could see it pinned up there in front of you. Yeah, actually, that's a really important point too. Is it? I mean, designers do themselves not intentionally a huge disservice because they're so passionate. Often, quite. I mean, I was the same. I'm incredibly quiet and um, shy. I can't uh, believe that, Vince. It's true. <laughs> it's true. When I was younger, um, I still am. I still get nervous um, about things. And um, a lot of them, the, some of the most brilliant designers that I've worked with, are the ones that are the most. Um, unconfident and unable to actually articulate their ideas in a convincing way because they go, well, I just did it. You know, that's it. That's, that's I just did this and this and this. And yes, I know. They undersell themselves. I know a couple of eminent designers who are hopeless presenters. Yeah. But is that, the problem is, that's why I get slightly frustrated about that, is that they don't realise their potential. They don't, you know, other in their career. Um, yes, but I would... Get their I would, ideas through. I would see more value in your ability to communicate, your ability to work with others... Um, your ability to see through an idea from its initial creation to completed project has much more important set of skills than uh, doing a spreadsheet, you know, than the business yeah. skills. You know, someone else can do those. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're a more rounded design creative person if yeah. you have those other skills. But if you're a, 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 a hot creative person, um, you're, not you're not necessarily... If you, certainly, if you're starting out, you don't even have the the money to you know you get you got the money to get kind of get by. You don't have. I remember I starting out going buying a, a fax machine at the time was a, yeah. a luxury, <laughs> <laughs> let alone a computer or hiring my, as an assistant. I mean, it's all kind of like it's all relative. If you only make enough revenue to support yourself, then you're probably never going to be able to afford to bring. Yeah, but in there's been the on that person. journey, Vince. There's been moments when you've think, oh my god, okay, can I hire person number two? Yeah, yeah. and you take the plunge, and you know. It works, and then yeah. you're on person number three and four, yeah, yeah. you know, and so on. And you've, just, many you've got to take far? those risks at certain points in your journey. 
when we met, I think uh, Design Festival had three people, yeah, and that included the two founders. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe was it? Joe there? Uh, Joe was working directly for John. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, and we're now, uh, I think we're on nineteen at the moment. Mm. And um, you know, but but on the other hand, I have this conversation with my wife as an architect. And she feels very strongly that there is an optimum size for her business. And what's that? Well, she thinks it's between kind of uh, 60 and 80 people. Yeah. And she thinks they will be the most effective and creative as a business in in that kind of size band that she's identified. Is that the size she is now? No, she, she's a bit less than that now. She's has she about been, 50 Has she been moment. bigger than that before? Uh, she's not been bigger, but she's been that size. And she's she's seen the benefits of having a certain scale. Remember, in architecture, the projects are long. Uh, that they're, mm. You know, you have a team of people focused yeah. on it. You might have a dozen people working on, on the project. Yeah. Um, and that rule probably applies for everyone. The, and, and I know some businesses, um, uh, particularly in the graphics world, who deliberately stay small. Mm. They've chosen. Yeah, they've chosen to do that. To to to, to be be modest in their scale. Yeah. Like, like Graphic Fort Facility, for example. You know, one of the most important graphics outfits in London, and you know they say no to a lot of work. I think because they they want to do certain kind of work, and on and they want to uh, be able to manage the amount of work that they have. Mm. What do you think the future of of design in London and the world is in terms of you know with with the, the kind of the, the fast changing technology uh, with AI um, starting to play a big part in our lives and how we communicate you know etc. Well, I mean, do you think that uh, is there a danger that we're going to lose the creativity that we have that we have at our fingertips here? No, I don't think it's the opposite. Actually, I think the creativity becomes even more important. You know, creativity is the kind of interface, the translator of technology. You know, we we in in the design world frame how how we uh, uh, how you use our technology. I mean, interesting. We're doing an AI project with Sony this year. You know, Sony. I mean, I remember when I only bought Sony products. Mm. I don't anymore. And do you the, want them to hear that? Uh, yeah, they can hear that. Yeah. And they, they say that themselves. <laughs> and they they know that they have to change as a business mm. from making hardware to becoming a much more integrated lifestyle business. Mm. So the couple of shows that they've done in, in Milan and in London, they're doing one with us in London around AI, it's about a series of design experiments through technology. Mm-hmm. And it's about uh, enhancing your lifetime experiences. So the first one that they did in Milan last year was a series of of experiments is in within your home. You know, most people's design identity expressed through their own kind mm. of private and personal environment. Yeah. And it, it, you could go there and you could change light conditions, what according to your mood. You could look out your window and see any view you wanted. Um, you know, they were quite clever little experiments, which mm. um, could lead to a a a, a product or a, or a service. You know, they say they're, they're doing more work with car companies now than, than you know, ma- making hardware, which is what they were, were renowned for. Mm. You know, so they've got uh, links with um, the major car manufacturers and how they, um, how they can communicate. I mean, this idea that all cars are going to be able to talk to each other mm. is, is very, very close. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you you don't own a car, but you have a bespoke relationship with any car that you get into. Yeah. 
um, all of those things uh, require a greater integration of businesses. Mm. This year in the VNA, we're doing an installation with them, which is around AI. And you'll go into a room, and there will be what appears to be a kind of um, a kind of globe cage, in which is an arm, a kind of very very simple basic robotic arm. It notices you when you walk in the room, and it might be three of you standing there, and it looks at you. It's got a light on the end of it. It's got a camera, and it gets to know you, mm-hmm. and it will make a decision. It that it likes you, Vince, more than the other two people standing there. As it would, yes. And it will, I mean, obviously it's going to choose you. <laughs> <laughs> and it will connect with you. And I've seen it in a in a studio working. And it's quite a kind of, you know, because we all have a slightly kind of sinister dystopian view of, of kind of technology. But what these experiments are about are trying to, to explore how we engage uh, through AI and, 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 and other technical advances that are, you know, about to transform our lives um, and how we can make that interface as kind of friendly and as helpful as, as, as possible. Mm. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm an optimist like you. I'm a kind of positive person about but don't, all, don't, all of those things. Doesn't it worry that they kind of, I think they say that, for, you know, there's going to be a reduction of 40% of, um, you know, the population will be unemployed. Not, as, not interesting. I've read a couple of surveys. It's not interesting in the creative sector. Really? Yeah. It, it, I'm sure people are beavering away at this as well. You know, AI, AI branding. It's the least bot. vulnerable to uh, being replaced by robots and technology. Hmm. You yeah. know, we're um, in a good place. You know, yeah, uh, all those skills that you've had, that you've built up over all of these years that I've tried to tell stories about, are important skills for the 21st century. And they can't be learned. I mean, we teach other people them. Yeah, can teach them sure, they, they can be learned, but um, uh, I think nothing beats the real thing. Let's talk about what's on for the festival this year. What, what bigger things are happening for you? Okay, I mean, an important thing to say is a city-wide event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not in one location. Um, we're spread across the city, uh, which brings its, its problems on its own because it's a big place. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we try to do is create a series of districts and... and uh, uh, concentrations of activity in different parts of the city. So there's 11 different design districts this year. All, I hope, have their own personality to them. So uh, you can go to Shoreditch, for example, which is one of the oldest ones. Uh, it's focused around SCP, which is an important design store on Curtain Road. And within a short walking distance of SCP, you can go and see 40 or 50 different things uh, all open and on the late on, on, that, on that first night. And I hope you will then discover something that mm. you weren't aware about and mm. it will have a, an impact on your life. Uh, meanwhile, over in Brompton, which is by, in South Kensington area, there's a different design twist to it and it has a different personality because there's some big international brands there but there's also, there's a lucky guy, by the way, who owns South Ken, which he inherited. Didn't happen to me, sadly, but happened to him and he's very pro-design and he gives over what spaces he has. It's uh, not Prince Charles, is it? It's not Prince Charles, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Some other bloke. Another guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he um, has helped create a very, very successful and kind of buoyant and quite idea-orientated design district, particularly for kind of younger people. Mm. And that's important for us. We're giving that platform for people who, at the beginning of their design careers, to to, to say something and to to meet people. Fantastic. Um, We've got a very special relationship with V&A. 
they let us go and play in their building. I think it's quite unique, actually, that a third party is allowed to go in mm. and run a programme of activity each year. Uh, it works for us and it works for them. Uh, we will put a series of uh, commissions that we've done uh, around different design stories. Um, we doubled our audience. We broadened the profile of our audience. We bring in people who've never been in the v before, um, which is a big tick for, for the museum. Mm. Um, you will be able to see, as I said, a series of stories. Um, one important one is about uh, single-use plastics. Uh, we're working with SAP, uh, who are probably the business people use most but don't know about. Mm -hmm. They design it, uh, system software. So every time you go to a store and buy a loaf of bread or get a pair of shoes or uh, do a financial transaction, they've almost certainly been, be, been behind that process. Uh, they've taken it upon themselves to try and eradicate single-use plastics from our oceans. There's a terrible, terrible stat, which is by 2050, if nothing's done, there'll be more plastic items in the oceans than there will be living creatures. Mm -hmm. um, yet they have enough leverage to get um, the global clients, when I talk about global clients, this is Coca-Cola, Nestle, Procter Gamble, all these kind of people around the table to commit to designing out of the system single-use plastics. Mm. Wow. God, good luck, good luck on that journey. Um, and we are trying to tell that story uh, as in the front entrance of the V&A. Why, uh, why can't they get them to go, go and get all that uh, content out of the oceans? Coke. Surely Coke has a responsibility to collect. Well, I, I, I collect think that. from what I'm told, Coke is an enthusiastic partner in mm. fixing this problem. Mm. They don't want their, their, their packaging to be to polluting the seas. Um, you know, but there's seven rivers, uh, all in Southeast Asia, which is where much of the uh, plastic pollution comes from. Mm. And if you reduced um, each year over the next five years... Uh, the plastic content coming out of those rivers, in five years' time, you could get back to 1990 levels, which would be quite an achievement. Mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah. that's a, a design story, and yeah, design it challenge. enables us to... And I, I was pretty impressed by the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to then visualise that, and we're working with a designer called Sam Jacob. He's created an installation above your head when you come in the V&A, which has this kind of infinity mirror in it, and it tells that story of... Mm. Uh, the changes and what one can do about it. Uh, there's a Sony in installation there. Um, we've also done a different project with uh, uh, an American hardwood association, which we called AHEC. Um, and we've it's a very nice project where we've commissioned 10 bespoke pieces uh, in American red oak, oak for uh, 10 cultural and creative leaders in London. Uh, you know, so the director of the V&A is getting a new chair and table in his waiting area by Jasper Morrison. It's interesting the director of the V&A uses mm. the desk that was designed by Henry Cole, the first director in the 1860s, huh. still there. Wow. Uh, so maybe this uh, waiting table, low table and chairs will still be there in 100 years' time for a, a, a future director. Yeah. So there's lots of things to see. And um, we also do stuff in, in different places. So we've got a, a, a very nice project um, with a artist designer called Liz West in uh, Fortnum and Masons, which is London's oldest store on mm -hmm. Piccadilly. And uh, it is a project based around iridescence. So it is a series of um, 
cubic um, columns clad in an iridescent material that would just reflect the light uh, mm. uh, around you. Mm. And you can look at some of these projects as design projects or sculpture or technology. I, I don't really care, to be honest. Mm. I want you to respond to it. Yeah. And those projects and the stories that they tell and the impact that has on you is important for us because, mm. as I said earlier, we're trying to get people to think about design in different ways. Mm. and people to notice design and its capability. And what's great about it, what continues to motivate me, is it's an infinite story, ocean of stories that, that, that can be told. And each year we literally start with a blank sheet of paper and think, right, what are we going to do? Who are we going to do it with? Mm. How are we going to do it? Who's going to pay for it? Mm. And that's a very, very exciting process. Mm. And I think and hope we have made a difference. Mm. You know, we now are... A, almost a mature, almost adult, in our year 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we've established ourselves as one of the most important um, design promotion events in the world. By the way, when we started, when you were uh, with us, Vince, there were perhaps five or six global cities doing design promotion events. There's now more than 150. Wow. Why is that? I mean, well, every city wants to use design as a story about them. You know, they're all competing with each other to an extent. Mm -hmm. But it is a very attractive way to tell something positive about your story. Absolutely. And actually, of all the creative disciplines, it's in a way the most accessible because we all consume it, we all use it, you know, um, and, uh, you know, it has a kind of universality to it. It can always be better. And it can always be better, absolutely. It's a, it's a never-ending journey of, yeah. of ideas and, 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 and improvement. So each festival is just a kind of another step on that, yeah. on, 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 that, on that journey. That must be so exciting to see that change and the evolution like that. Does London have its own, kind of, I guess, design style or look? You know, some cities talk about having their own distinct kind of uh, national <coughs> approach to design or whatever, but it kind of feels to me like you know, with Instagram and all these other kind of social platforms that, that the design, it's very hard to tell today which, what project has been done in what country and even if it's real a lot of times. Um, I would say no, not really. I mean, I, I, I've been asked that question a lot by journalists over the years. It, what is a kind of British design identity? Well, my, my kind of standard answer to that is, well, it's an, it's an identity shaped by others. Mm -hmm. because we've enjoyed and benefited from an influx of influences from all over the place, soaked yeah. those up, yeah, yeah. Re repackaged them and rethought them yeah. and represented them. Yeah. And I think that process is is real for everywhere. You know, the, the idea that you could have a distinct design identity from a particular country is a very kind of old-fashioned idea now mm, and not, is, not real with how the, the design sector works. Mm. You know, there's a, it's borderless. Yeah, it is. You know, in, in terms of your influence and in terms of how you think, you don't have to retrain to go and work anywhere else. Um, and I think, um, you remember Picasso had that great line, so there's no such thing as a truly original idea. You know, that's very apt for, for the design world. You know, you draw and I draw uh, uh, influences and sources of ideas from anywhere. And, you know, mm. the skill in a way is, is, is putting all of those together. Mm. I mean, perhaps that's a London skill. Mm. Perhaps that's part of our kind of cultural identity is that that ability to to uh, kind of rethink and reframe and represent uh, mm. an idea that yeah. that may have originated somewhere else. Yeah, and obviously there's the English humour too, which is an intellect that kind of that combination 
I, I think makes a big difference to other countries. Um, what about designing your life? Do you think that's... Uh, designing your life? What do you mean by that? Designing your life. Oh. Um, so I said it too quickly. But we can design... Designers can design pro out solutions for projects, for, for briefs, etc. Do you believe that one can design their life? Their own life? My mum always used to say to me, what's the plan? What's your career plan? Yeah. What do you mean, mum? You know, that's... You know, get real. That's not what it's like these days. And... Um, I think that would be a very, very conscious exercise that was probably rather limiting, actually, because on your journey, and I hope it's certainly my approach to life is to continue to learn and think differently mm. and, and soak up new influences and take new perspectives, that if you kind of structured that and predetermined that, I think you would probably have a less fulfilling life than if you allowed yourself to just go on Un unknown directions and routes and journeys. So winging it. <laughs> you might see it that way. No, I, I believe you can, uh, I mean, through trial and error again, uh, through screwing up a few times, I, I feel like there's things I could have done better if I'd planned, if I did have a three-year plan. And I do that now, I do have a... a yeah, but hang on, is that a business plan? plan or is that, a uh, kind of, is that a kind of design creative plan? Well, I see my life as both. I, I don't see it as two, two separate things. I see my life as in terms of the well-being of my life, my family, my businesses as one. Um, and there's obviously, there's multiple plans within that, that that helps me to, you know, stay on track versus previously just be responding to what comes my way. Because um, I can throw you in all good ways and bad ways as well the other things around your you know diet exercise i mean i haven't drank since for nine years now so i won't be partaking in the wine on on monday at the launch but unfortunately but uh, you know there's things you can do in your life to make your life better deliberately making yourself like your life better and i see that as in a way of tackling a design problem uh, the same way just looking at yourself and going okay how can i be better at what i do how can i be a better person okay you know, i subscribe to that philosophy of self-help and improvement and I hope that I can, I would continue and others would take that approach as well, which is to not see your life as a, as, as, as a, as a limit. There's no glass ceiling over it, mm. but you can continue to, to improve. And, 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 and I think most important for me is to be able to make a kind of contribution. I mean, we're very kind of public motivated in what, in what we're doing. We yeah. are running a business, believe yeah, it or yeah, not. Yeah. But it doesn't work for us. I don't feel satisfied for it. If we haven't made a contribution to which benefits a, a wide group of people who of whom I've got no financial relationship with, no, that's true. I mean, with a lot of designers and uh, <coughs> you know talking to my, my you know myself included is around design. As wonderful as it is, takes up a huge amount of energy and can be phenomenally stressful uh, because you put yourself under enormous pressure to deliver a successful outcome. A great yeah, but outcome. it's a very conscious process for you mm. and. Um, another way to look at it is uh, it's, it's a very subconscious process for absolutely everyone else. You know, either if they're experiencing your work or not. Oh, on the receiving yeah. end of that, yes. Yeah, but they are living design experiences. Yeah, 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 Their yeah. whole life is, is, is dominated by design experiences, but mm. it's, it's totally subconscious. Mm. Yeah. That's why I think designers should look after themselves, though. We're going to wrap up. Wonderful catching up with you, Ben. Thank you so much and have a, a you know, very successful year of the London Design Festival. I look forward to seeing you on Monday. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> cool. Thanks, man. <laughs> Wherever you've been. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, man. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about designing your life, 
head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective.